verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read uh, my own translation, which is really from the English Standard Version and the New International Version, but you can follow along in whatever version of God's Word you have. We're going to focus on verses 9 through 11, but I'll read verses 1 through 11 of Philippians 2. Hear now God's Word. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's take one more moment to pray. Father, we rejoice in reading about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in these very verses, our scripture reading from today. We ask for that same spirit who inspired these words to be written, that you would send him in power as we apply our minds to consider the very word of God. Pray that it would take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives beginning this very moment. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. The Bible you are perhaps holding in your very hands is astonishing. It is the writing of over 40 different human authors who wrote over hundreds of years, covering events that happened over thousands of years, who are all ultimately telling the story of our sin and our Savior. That's astonishing, amazing, worthy of our thinking, but perhaps it's even more astonishing to realize this, that these human authors who were separated geographically and separated by centuries, in their own way, foreshadowed Jesus Christ over and over throughout the Old Testament 
we have foreshadows of Jesus Christ through the stories that are recounted and told. And I want you to apply your mind to stories that you're actually already familiar with. Job, Joseph, Hannah, David. And consider the shape of their life stories as recounted in the Old Testament. In each of those cases, there is a sort of initial prosperity. And following that initial prosperity is humiliation. And then after that humiliation is exaltation. And that exaltation is even better than where they began with that initial prosperity. Think about Job. You turn to the book of Job and you learn very quickly that he's a man that God himself thinks very highly of. He's wealthy. He has children. That's the initial prosperity. But you don't get too far in the book of Job without it all falling apart, losing his own children, losing his wealth, losing his health, being attacked by Satan, not feeling the favor of God from prosperity to humiliation. But if you continue reading to the end of the book of Job, you see that the Lord restores Job, that he blesses him with even more children and wealth and brings him to a place that was better than he, where he was initially. That story is true of Joseph as well in the book of Genesis. Joseph begins as the favored son of Jacob. He is blessed and has these dreams in which he learns from God's revelation to the, through these dreams that he's going to be exalted. He starts off with prosperity. And then his brothers, out of jealousy, sell him into slavery. He is carted off to the land of Egypt, spends time in an Egyptian prison. The prosperity has led to humiliation, but you know the story. Eventually, he is exalted to serve at Pharaoh's right hand as the prime minister of Egypt and is exalted where he is at the end of Genesis is even better than where he was at the initial stages of his prosperity. You can see the same thing in the story of Hannah. She's married and taken care of, and yet she's barren and is enduring humiliation. The Lord blesses her with the birth of Samuel, a prophet of the Lord, and then she goes on to have other children. David, the giant slayer, slays Goliath, is favored by Saul, but then falls out of favor with Saul, is on the run throughout this period of his life, faces all sorts of difficulties during his estate of humiliation, and then is exalted to be King David over united Israel, even better than his initial prosperity. You are meant to consider those stories and read of each of those characters and others in the Old Testament and see in them over and over pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ foreshadowing 
Jesus Christ himself. There's that Old Testament buildup saying, this is the way God does things. This is the way he works. These are pictures of what he will do through the coming Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. And that's precisely what we read about and have been reading about in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Last week we looked at Christ's humiliation in verses 6 through 8, and today we come to verses 9, 10, and 11, which deal with Christ's exaltation, which is where he is now. And we, we are going to look at these verses with, uh, it, from two different aspects. First is the source of Christ's exaltation, and then the state of Christ's exaltation. So we'll look at the source of the exaltation and then the state itself. And as we come to these verses, I think it's so helpful to realize, in a sense, we're not quite done with humility. Because verse 9 says something glorious. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You see here the source of Christ's exaltation is God the Father. This, these 11 verses are, are full of the Trinity and references to them. The Spirit references early on in verse 1, but then in these final verses there's an interchange, an exchange between God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. And the way humility works is demonstrated here in verse 9. Jesus Christ has come, has lived among us, has been obedient to the point of death, even death of a cross. And yet, in some sense, this humility continues. He doesn't point to his own work. He doesn't say, look at what I have done, look at what I have accomplished. That's not what you read in verse 9. But instead, God the Father Almighty exalts him and bestows on him a name that is above every name. You see, even in the exaltation, the glorious humility of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's something he receives, he's acknowledged by God himself. And I think that's helpful for us as we consider our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 25, we read about our own coming exchange with God at the end of the age. Words that are familiar to us. We read Matthew 25, verse 34, that the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? 
The king will answer and say to you, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And I'm directing your attention to that account that you've heard before because it, again, demonstrates the, the humility that is appropriate and that is seen in Jesus Christ himself. As we rejoice in our union with Jesus Christ and identify with him and see our stories in his story, we have this place for humility. We, we don't go to God and say, look at what I've done. Look at this and look at my faithfulness here and my righteousness over here and all the ways in which I've served you here. And Jesus Christ himself didn't do that. Jesus Christ wasn't boasting about his efforts and his performance and all the things that he accomplished. God highly exalted him. God saw what he had done. God received the glory that Jesus Christ gave him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. And as Christians in Christ, we do very much the same. We, we get lost in living before this Lord, but we're not obsessed with pointing out our performance, pointing to what we've done, saying, here, I've done this, and here, I've done this, and I've done this for you, Lord, and I've done this for you, Lord. Instead, we leave that to the Lord in humility, rejoicing in God, who highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We rejoice in the source of this exaltation. We came upon something similar here in Philippians chapter 1. And we spoke about Paul's six-word summary of what it means to be a Christian. Where in Philippians 1, verse 21, he said, For me to live is Christ. And we spent so much time focusing on those six one-syllable words because we realized for me to live is Christ means to die is gain. If for you to live is Christ, then to die is gain. And there's something of a, a parallel here where we are told about the exaltation to come and Christ's very exaltation. But what we need to focus on is our willingness to endure the estate of humiliation. That exaltation will come. The source of that exaltation is God. If you need more confirmation of what is coming, Jesus Christ is the first fruits. We are told this. We are told that he is the first fruit, that he is the first raised from the dead, the firstborn from the dead. He already has a glorified body. He has that glorified body right now as he rules and reigns from heaven. God is the source of that exaltation, honoring his estate of humiliation by exalting him and bestowing on him the name which is above every name. That's the source of Christ's exaltation, and it will be the source of our own exaltation at that point as we follow not only Jesus, but Job and Joseph and Hannah and David and the other saints recounted in Scripture. But let's now look at the state of Christ's exaltation itself. 
what we used as our confession of faith today and all the things that we are considering so frequently as we realize on the one hand Jesus Christ is not here with us in the flesh but is has ascended up into heaven and is at the right hand of God the Father. We read that he has a name above every name and that at that name every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Two ways in which these verses testify to the fact that Jesus Christ is divine. Those two ways are that in verse 10, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 45, verse 23, speaking about God to whom every knee will bow. In the Old Testament, simply God, every knee will bow before God, but Paul says Jesus, identifying Jesus as the God before whom every knee would bow. And then in verse 11, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, you know, over and over throughout the Old Testament, God is called Lord or Yahweh. And Jesus Christ is here equated with this Lord, called Lord. So you see the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's got this name above all names. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. I enjoyed this before when we were singing our opening hymn. Blessing and honor and glory and power. Soundeth the heaven of the heavens with his name. Ringeth the earth with his glory and fame. Maybe we don't think enough about this. Very easy for us as Christians to understand that in some ways we're marginalized, criticized, persecuted, thought lowly of, mocked, scorned, all of those things are very true. And yet now we're going into the second millennium, the third millennium, of Jesus Christ being worshipped and glorified, the earth itself ringing with his fame, being glorified as Savior and Lord, the name above all names, the King of Kings. Think about how many kings have come and gone across this world over the last 2,000 years. Think about how many lords and rulers and noblemen and leaders, politicians, governors, prime ministers, and presidents have come and gone over the last 2,000 years. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ is still exalted. He is still risen and reigning from the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The earth rings with his glory, with his fame. Think about how many churches on this very day are worshiping that name above all names, giving him 
blessings and honor and glory and power. He is exalted and to some extent, not the way it will be in eternity, but to some extent that exaltation is recognized and the church certainly testifies to it by doing what you are doing right now, worshiping him. I might even say, though we're Presbyterians, worshiping him with abandon, not foolishness, not falling around in the aisles or barking like a fool, but saying, this is what I'm all about. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless this exalted name above all names, risen and reigning, humble Lord Jesus Christ, who's even now making intercession for me, who accomplished all this by doing precisely the opposite of what the world in every age has advocated. Out of complete disinterest of self, not grasping what was his, turning in every way away from self-interest, even going before God and waiting for him to bestow on him a name that is above all names, not self-promoting. He is now King of kings, Lord of lords, unparalleled in a world that perhaps testifies to this by the Bible being the most published book of all time. King of kings, Lord of lords, in which the earth rings with his glory and fame. Think about this. We went through a number of Old Testament examples, Job and Joseph and Hannah and David, and made a point to establish that they began in a place of prosperity to some extent, then humility, but finally exaltation that was even better than the initial prosperity. How does that apply with this text before us? Isn't it amazing? It's glorious. Jesus Christ in heaven, we read, was equal with God in the very nature of God, but he doesn't grasp those things. He lays it aside. He leaves the riches of heaven to be born to poor parents and to live a life among sinners that results in death, even the death of the cross. Initial prosperity. He's God himself in heaven, perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit. Initial prosperity followed by humiliation, born among us, living among us, going to the death of the cross. Then exaltation. Where is he now? Back in heaven. You don't read about Jesus Christ reigning from the right hand of God the Father. Well, you do read about it in the Old Testament, but it's a prophecy about what's going to come. And over and over in the New Testament, they say, this is where he is. He's not just in heaven. He's not just dwelling with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, but he has returned to the Father, having accomplished his mission. He has lived among us in perfection and died on the cross in perfect obedience 
So death couldn't keep him. He rose again from the dead. And now, yes, he's in heaven, but it's even better because he's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And now every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and it will all be to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is back in heaven and it's even better than the initial prosperity of heaven itself. I want to mention three things here that I believe are worthy of our thinking, worthy of our consideration. There is a day coming at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. That's how complete his exaltation will be, that even those who have committed their lives to being rebels against God and enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ, though they persist in their rebellion, will come to a point where, I suppose unwillingly, they will bow the knee and confess the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the truth. There's a lot of hope in that. It's the reason we can believe that things will be set straight, things will be set right. It's very sobering because it's inevitable. Isn't it breathtaking to look at that and say because of God's work, because of the way the Holy Spirit has moved in me, because of how the Lord has led me to him, because the Lord has opened my, my eyes and opened my heart and illuminated my mind, because the Lord cared about me as a person in time, I'm not destined to unwillingly bow my knee and confess his name, but I do it right now. That's why I'm here, maybe not on my knees physically, but at least spiritually, my knees are bowed in submission to my king, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not waiting for eternity for that. I do it now. I do it daily. I do it regularly. I do it with all that is in me. My heart's desire is to bow before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to rejoice in his exaltation, to say you're my God and you're not just Jesus Christ the Lord, you're my Savior. That's God's grace that has brought you to this point. By nature, you would be unwilling. By nature, you were unwilling. By his grace, you bow the knee in submission and worship, rejoicing to make Jesus Christ your confession, 
We literally do that every Sunday. Confession of faith after confession of faith. Confessing in one way or another Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think for the second thought to consider, this other thing to consider, of our assurance of pardon from earlier in the worship service, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. We read about Christ's humiliation, his suffering. We start to see our own lives in those terms. That our own lives are, some, are, are in a state of humiliation in which we ourselves undergo suffering, grief, affliction, disease, all sorts of sadnesses, tears. Isn't it astonishing that though Jesus is God with a name above all names and will be worshipped for all eternity as God and Lord, which you are not, you are nonetheless called to look at his state of exaltation, seeing your exaltation as being in the future. Being on the horizon. If you suffer with him, you'll be glorified with him. You're not going to sit at the right hand of God the Father. You're not going to be God of God and light of light. You're not going to be worshipped as God because you won't be God. But you will be exalted. The Lord in your life. And this is why we began with Job and Hannah and Joseph and David. Other saints, your brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hannah being your sister in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is at work in your life saying that he is drawing you through this life that is a state of humiliation so that you can participate in exaltation because of Jesus Christ. You will be glorified with him. These verses are not just about Jesus. They are about you in Jesus and about your future in him. And as a final thing to consider as we live in this world that is full of twists and turns and upsetting features, all we need to do is read a newspaper or watch an hour of the news and there's plenty of reason for discouragement. And if we're not careful, we can become those that have this wonderful hope of the gospel that are identified by good news having permeated our lives, and yet in a sort of day-to-day, moment-to-moment, we can be despairing and sort of practically hopeless and forget that this theology, this high theology and Christology ought to inform every moment of our lives. How glorious is it that these verses of the exaltation 
are about Jesus Christ alone. How equitable and fair that is. If you look at this world and feel all of its inequities and all of its jagged edges and all of its upheaval and grief and sadness, realize the, the glory and the justice of this. Famous people, people you know about, rulers and celebrities, by and large, they get to their place of influence through self-interest. That's why when you read about their lives, there can be all sorts of really disgusting and vile things. Not about all of them, but about many of them. Because to get somewhere in this world, to be acknowledged, to be popular, to have fame and influence and power, often requires, or at least people perceive it as requiring, putting self before all else, self-interest, subjugating others, maybe even enslaving others, if you think about different cultures and ages. Think about Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus. Think about rulers and kings and warriors, all those who have established something significant in this world and all the ways in which they put interest of self before all else. And realize how many of their names have already been forgotten by history. And that one day, none of them will stand, but instead all of them will bow before Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, exalted by God the Father Almighty, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God with a name above every name. Why? Because he didn't consider his rights as God something to be grasped. At every point, he defied interest of self and threw himself into the interest of others. At every point, he had that mind that was more concerned with others than it was concerned with himself. Not a life of relentless self-promotion and self-interest, a life of humility willingly taken on for the good of others so that he might glorify his Father in heaven so that his father might give him a name above every name. Before him, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Jesus alone, without rival. That is our hope as we go forth. Let's pray.